Well, this morning we're uh, diving into a, a new series that I'm really excited about. Uh, we're launching into a, a new series going through uh, the Gospel of John. Uh, now it's going to take us a number of months to get through the 21 chapters uh, in the book of John, and so we'll likely be in John uh, all the way, uh, probably through until maybe next spring, uh, with maybe the exception of Christmas. And, and the reason I'm, I'm so excited about the book of John apart from the fact that I've never uh, preached through it in its entirety before, is that there is no other book in the Bible uh, that I recommend more uh, than John. Uh, so when there, so, someone is, is not a Christian and I'm talking to them about Christianity and maybe the conversation gets to the point where they say, well, like, where do I start reading the Bible to understand it? Where, you know, what do I read? I always tell them, you should start with John. Read John. And when someone becomes a new Christian, they're relatively new to faith, and they're like, I want to know more about this Jesus I'm following, what should I read? I say, you should read John. And when a Christian comes along, and maybe they've been Christian, a Christian for decades and decades even, and they're like, you know, my Christianity has kind of, kind of gotten stale, it's feeling a, a little bit flat for me, I say, you know what you should do? You should read John. Why? Well, one commentator said it this way. John is, is the kind of book where it's shallow enough on the edges that a child can play in it. And it's deep enough in the middle that you could sink an elephant. That's what the, that's what the gospel of John is like. And John, when he wrote it, he, he wrote for us really the highest and fullest expression of who, who Jesus is. And in John uh, chapter 20, a passage that we're going to uh, cover months from now, uh, so I figure I might as well read it now because you'll forget by the time we get to it again. In John 20, he gives the purpose for why he wrote his gospel account of Jesus. And he says this, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these, these particular ones, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You know, we, I mean, we live in a culture of oversharing. You know, uh, I mean, we've got Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and who knows what else. And, 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 and it's led to us living in a culture of oversharing where we share, you know, the most obscure, the most intimate, sometimes important, sometimes trivial details of our lives. And if we were to take all of these things that are these social media elements that we had and pack them into like one book, you know, we'd have like a, a, a giant book of our whole lives, but all of our lives still wouldn't be in that book, right? There'd be times where you mowed the lawn and you didn't post it on social media. There, there might even be a meal that you enjoy without posting it to social media. There are times where you'll have tough uh, conversations with your spouse that you didn't put on social media. You even choose what things you're going to share and what you're not going to share. Well, think about John for a second. I mean, John had 21 chapters to write about Jesus and had three years that he spent with Jesus. And so he distilled down into about 18,000 words, which, by the way, I calculated that works out to about 340 tweets. He distilled Jesus' life into the equivalent of 340 tweets, 
which means he only shared very specific details, very specific stories. Which ones did he share? Well, this is what John wanted us to know. He wanted us to know. What he wanted us to know is where we could find life. Because he knows that all of us, are, we are searching for life. So many of us are searching for relationships or, or our career or accomplishments or whatever to, to, to give us that life. And John's, John's like, listen, I know you're not going to get life from those places. You might get a little echo of life, but you're not, gonna, you're not really getting life. The place where you're going to get life is Jesus. And so I want you to believe in Jesus and receive Jesus, that he is the Son of God, the Christ, the one who has come to save. And so that's why John wrote his gospel account. And John is unique from the other three gospel writers in telling uh, his story of Jesus. He told different stories than the other gospel writers uh, told. He, he, he omitted some stories that, that they wrote about, he, he, and he added some stories that they didn't. Some very uh, familiar stories don't, don't show up in John. John didn't write any of Jesus' parables down. He just told a very different story. He told of the interactions of people with Jesus, considering who he was. And so before we go any further this morning, we're going to stop and pray. And then we're going to jump in and start our way through the first bit of John's gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel of John and for his unique telling of the life and ministry of your son. We know that on any given Sunday, there might be people in our hearing who are not yet Christians, and so we pray for such this morning that they would find in the pages of John life. And for any this morning who might be newer to the faith, young in their understanding of the faith, we pray that, that they would get a good, robust understanding of their faith through these pages. And, and for those of us who have been Christians for a while, for years, especially of those of us who have maybe felt kind of stale in our faith, we do pray that this reminder of who Jesus is would breathe life back into our faith as we study this gospel over the coming months. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, in starting a, a study of the, the gospel of John, we ought to ask the question, who's John? Uh, who is this guy who wrote this account of Jesus' life and ministry. Well, John was one of, the, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, and we don't know for certain how old he was when he followed Jesus for those three years of his earthly ministry. But many commentators argue for relatively young disciples. You know, some of them, like the older one, like, like Peter, maybe in, in their 20s, but many of them would have been even younger, you know, teenagers. And those same commentators will argue that John was, was most likely the youngest of all the disciples. And, and some would argue that it's very possible that John was even as young as 12 or 13 years old when he started following Jesus. Now again, we don't know for certain, but yeah, if that is true, just think about it for a moment. I mean, just think about a 12 or 13-year-old that you know. I mean, whoever you have in mind. It's probably hard to picture them as one of Jesus' disciples, right? But it's possible that John started following Jesus when he was like 12, 13 years old. Which means that John wrapped up 
his time on earth with Jesus before he could even get his driver's permit. He was as young as 15 years old when he stood before the cross of Jesus. Out of the 12 disciples, John was the only one who wasn't killed for his faith. Not for, not for lack of trying. He, he was jailed and he was tortured. In fact, some stories say that he was dipped in a vat of boiling oil. But he never died for his faith. He was the one guy who lived into his 90s. He was, he was exiled onto uh, an island called Patmos where he wrote the, the book of Revelation that we have at the end of our Bibles. And it's likely that it was also in his later years that he wrote his gospel account. And so think about it for a moment. You've got this guy who started following Jesus as a young teenager. Saw Jesus rise from the dead a few years later. And it so radically altered his life. That as he watched his friends get tortured and died. And as he was tortured and he was in prison. He never let go of that faith. And it's very likely, and we don't know for sure, but it's very likely that John was, as I said, was written towards the end of his, his life. And so he picked up his pen and he wrote these words. And I invite you to turn to John 1 if you have your Bible with you. If not, please follow along with the text as you'll find it in your worship guide. John 1, in the beginning was the Word. All four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, start in a historic context. So, so Matthew is primarily writing to, to a Jewish audience, and so he starts by, 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 by setting out all of these Jewish genealogies in order to, uh, you know, so he can talk to them about the fact that Jesus was this Jewish Messiah that they had been waiting for. Mark and, and Luke start telling the story of a guy named John the Baptist, who John's also going to get to pretty quickly in this chapter as well. But John's historic context is everything. He's like, I'm going to start this all the way back. In the beginning was the Word. And the word there that is translated word is the word logos. And the word logos from which we uh, get the word logo is, is uh, a word for message or teaching or wisdom. And, and a lot of Greek and Jewish philosophers would have used this to describe their message and their teaching and all of that. And so what John does is he grabs hold of this idea and he personifies it. He says, the logos, the message, the teaching, the wisdom of God, they're not just a concept, they are a person. Jesus is the word. And so what John will go on to show us is that all of Jesus' life is, is, as a, as, is as the, his life as the Word, it speaks to us. So if you're like, Jesus is coming down to earth as a baby instead of you know, coming down like in, 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 in Independence Day, speaks to us. It speaks to us as he's wanting to come and identify with us. Jesus' life speaks to us about how we ought to live. Jesus' miracles speak to us, an authenticating word that he is from God. His teachings speak to us what God is like and, and what following him means. His dying on the cross speaks to us about a love so extravagant that he would lay down his life for us. His resurrection from the dead speaks to us of his power over death. Jesus is in just every conceivable way, the final decisive word for us. Jesus is the word. And the word of God, that's 
what we call this, the Word of God in written form, tells us about the Word of God in living reality. It tells us about Jesus. All of it tells us about Him. And John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so, right off the start, he, he starts here with a theological bang. I mean, he, he starts by talking about the fact that, that Jesus wasn't simply a, a good moral teacher. He, he wasn't just a, a man. He wasn't just a prophet. But he declares unequivocally that Jesus was and is God. And, then, and, and in this, he, 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 he kind of has this little echo of the Trinity. He, he doesn't dive into it too much here, but he, but he does say, hey, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's like, well, which one? Yes. And that's the doctrine of the Trinity, which is essentially that we worship one God who exists eternally in three persons, God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, I don't know how you picture the act of, of creation taking place. If you, if you ever sit down and think about God creating the world, but in most of our minds, I would argue that when we're thinking about uh, creation, we, we don't think about Jesus. You know, maybe we're thinking about God the Father sitting up on a throne somewhere, you know, with a big beard for some reason, you know, really more of a picture of Zeus than the God of the Bible, but he's sitting on this throne and he's creating everything, right? But Jesus is the one who does the creating. In fact, it says in the book of Colossians that all things were created by him and for him. So everything that was created not just by Jesus and through Jesus, but for Jesus. So everything in the world, from evergreen trees to the Grand Canyon to the LeBron James, were created for God's glory and his pleasure and, and his joy through Jesus. And so all things, it says, are created by him and for him. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Remember in John 20, uh, John says, my whole purpose in writing this is that you would have life. Well, right here in John 1, he starts talking about life. And you're going to hear that pop up again and again and again and again through the book of of John. He's asking the question, where are you going to find life? I remember uh, reading this news article a number of years back that was... It was really kind of heartbreaking. It was um, about this uh, a Paralympian who, who had won tons of golds and other medals around the world for, for like a decade or, or so. And, and she had this debilitating uh, back disease, which is why she was a Paralympian. And, and she just said, and, and this was shortly before the, the Rio Olympics um, a few years ago. And, and she said, you know, once I'm done there, I'm going to euthanize myself. She lived in a, a country, Belgium, where that was allowed, and she just says, like, because I don't have anything to live for. The only thing I have left to live for is going to Rio, and once I've done with, I'm done with those Olympics, I don't have anything left, and it was heartbreaking when I first read it, and I looked up her story again just this week as I was thinking about that article and thinking about her, and, and she sadly followed through with taking her life, and while that's an extreme case, 
Isn't it kind of what we're all doing? We all live our life looking around wondering, is, it, is, is what I'm living for right now really giving me life? Is, it, is, is this worth living for? I mean, imagine, imagine John. John watches one of his closest friends get thrown from the rooftop of a temple and killed for following Jesus. He watches another guy get crucified upside down. And one by one, he hears reports of others of the disciples being killed. And, and, and I wonder if at some point, John, John was just like, I don't know if this is, is this, is this worth living for? But John's like, no, from the time he was a young teenager, Jesus so radically changed him. that He, he, could, look, he could look at Jesus and say, even when things suck, Jesus brings life. What does he say? He says there is darkness in this world. And Jesus is the light into that darkness. Light is interesting, isn't it? Light is interesting because of its relationship to dark. You see, dark is not actually a thing. Dark is just the absence of of light, right? You you can't just pick up some dark and carry it into a a, a lit room and go, oh, I, I just made the room dark, right? That's not, that's not what happens. As soon as you have light, it dispels the darkness. And John says, listen, when this world seems like it is so dark and it needs light, and just a little bit of light will, will, will begin to change things. And Jesus is all the light, which means sometimes it's painful, right? You know, you know, you know, you know what I mean, don't you? you? You know what it's like in the middle of the night when, when someone happens to flip on the light switch and all of a sudden we're like, ah, my, 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 my eyes, because it's so bright. Because we're so used to the dark that sometimes we don't like the light when we first see it. And listen to what John says. He says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I don't know about you, but, but it sure seems like the darkness is overcoming sometimes, doesn't it? There's war in Ukraine, humanitarian crises in South Sudan, Somalia, Syria, and many other places around the world. Racial tensions are high. Violence is rampant. We, 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 we just can kind of tick off all of these things, and it just seems like darkness is, is winning. And that's why we need the light. I'm getting ahead of myself. There was a man, John writes, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, John is, is not inserting himself into the story at this point. He's talking about a, a different John. The, the John that he's talking about is John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Now, this is kind of an odd statement inserted here. Um, the reason is he doesn't talk about John anymore until the end of the, the chapter. It's like all of a sudden, in the middle of talking about Jesus, the light, he talks, you know, he kind of takes this right turn and starts talking about um, you know, John the Baptist, oh yeah, there's this guy named John the Baptist, and John the Baptist talked about the light, and then he goes back to talk about the light. Verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So he reminds us that Jesus as creator creates everything, 
He creates the earth and he spins the rings around Saturn and he creates subatomic particles and everything's good and everything's in perfect sync with how God created it to be. And then he creates man and woman and they are just perfectly in sync with how he created everything to be. But then the man and the woman sinned. And sin is any failure to reflect the image of God in our nature, our attitude, our actions, which, which means we're, we're out of sync with God. And so now we're out of sync with God and sin comes in and darkness begins to settle in. And so there, there becomes this chasm, this, this, this separation between humanity and creation and God. And yet the Bible, even on the very first pages in Genesis, begins to, hint at a, it begins to hint at a plan to set all of this right. And, and so God then reaches into humanity and plucks out for himself a people, the Jews. And he says, from you, there will be a Savior that will, that will come and set all of this right. And I want you guys to live very differently from the world around you so that people will see that you are different, so that you can point to me. And if you read about the Jews in the Old Testament, they, they lived some pretty odd lives, but part of the odd life was so that they could point people to Jesus, the Savior. And then Jesus shows up on the scene as the Jewish Messiah, and the Jews look at Jesus and they say, nope, that's not you. That's what John says. And yet he also says this, verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, who he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is John's core message. The key to life is being synced with the light. And Jesus is the light. And so believing in him and receiving him. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? It doesn't mean just to believe that Jesus existed in history or to believe in a, a, a theoretical a Jesus or, or believe in a Jesus of your own choosing and your own ordering where you get to decide who he is, but to believe in the real Jesus, the one that, that he has been describing and the one we will see revealed throughout the pages of, of, of this gospel account, the one who is the God of the universe, the one who is the creator God, part of the Trinity, who is also the Messiah, who lived a sinless life and then died on the cross and then was buried and rose again on the third day. This is the one in whom we believe. If, if you believe in a different Jesus, then you're not believing in the actual Jesus. So what does it mean to receive this Jesus? Well, I love how John Piper describes it. He says it better than I ever could, and so I'm just going to read his words. He says, receiving Jesus means that when Jesus offers himself to you, you welcome him into your life for what he is. If he comes to you as Savior, you welcome his salvation. If he comes to you as leader, you welcome his leadership. If he comes to you as provider, you welcome his provision. If he comes to you as counselor, you welcome his counsel. If he comes to you as protector, you welcome his protection. If he comes to you as authority, you welcome his authority. If he comes to you as king, you welcome his rule. Receiving Jesus means taking Jesus into your life for what he is. It does not mean a kind of peaceful coexistence with a Christ that makes no claims, as though he can stay in the house as long as he doesn't play his music so loud. I love that last bit because that's how we often treat Jesus. 
We say, I'm going to accept you, Jesus, but I'm not going to accept all of you. I'm going to call myself a Christian. I'm going to go to church as long as dot, 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 right? And as soon as we add the as long as in there, what do we do? We place ourselves in authority over Jesus. We say, I get to decide what is true and righteous and good. We really just so much want a God that doesn't offend us. We want a God that, that does what we want. We want a God that, that accepts us on our own terms, but we are unwilling to accept him on his terms. But accepting Jesus means accepting him for who he actually is. You know, one of the images in the Bible that I love about who Jesus is, um, who the Messiah is, is this image of him being uh, the groom. And we're actually going to see this uh, come up in a, a couple of weeks in, in John, but, but this is a picture that flows through the Old Testament, even into the Old Testament, that the Messiah is a groom and that uh, the church becomes um, the bride to him. And, and there are a lot of nuances there, and, and Ephesians talks about this um, quite a bit, but the longer I'm married and the more married people I interact with, I, the more I realize this is just a, a great metaphor in a lot of ways. Uh, for instance, this is my experience. I hope this doesn't offend uh, you, uh, but in my experience, most men marry a woman uh, for who she is precisely at the moment that he asks her to marry him. Uh, he looks at her in that moment and says, she is absolutely perfect. And I will be happy if this woman never changes. And then most women marry a man for the potential that they see in him. And they're like, you know what? I can work with this. I, I, can, <laughs> I can really help this dude. Just, you know, just give me, just give me some time. Now, 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 here's where I see, where you see, we see so much marital strife. Namely, most men, they don't change. They're pretty much the same dude from 17 on. And most women, they're constantly changing, right? And so, when, when you get to the point where you realize this, this is where a lot of marital strife begins to pop up. So it's always my encouragement to, to couples, lean into the reality. Women, lean into the reality. This dude ain't changing. Men, lean into the reality. You get to be married to like 10 people, right? <laughs> just, just lean into that. So now let's, let's, let's start, take that over to Jesus as the, the groom and the church as the bride. It's not a perfect picture by any stretch, but, I, but, but I'm saying Jesus is the one that doesn't change. And we need to lean into the reality of who he is in our relationship with him. Even when it doesn't feel right to you, even when it doesn't when you don't agree with things, lean into the fact that Jesus is, is the light, that Jesus is truth, that he is righteousness, that he is goodness. And even if you don't agree with, with what he says, lean into it and believe that it, it's true, even when it doesn't seem so right to you. Now, now I know what, uh, 
that some of you are maybe going to say, but, but wait a minute, if I haven't fully received him in this way for who he is, if I'm still growing in this, does this mean that I'm not really uh, truly a Christian? No, no, no. See, here's another thing that we're going to learn uh, in John, and that is that Jesus is very patient. I mean, for crying out loud, he had teenage disciples, right? John will show us again and again through the book of John that Jesus meets people right where they are at. And he loves them so much that he calls them to live in a place far beyond where they are. He loves them too much to let them stay in that place. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. By the way, that's the entire Christmas story. He's, he's the one gospel writer who says, nah, I'm not, I'm not going to waste any time uh, with that. So here it is, word became flesh. So there you go. We've taken care of uh, December, a Merry Christmas. And we, ha- and we have seen his glory, glory as the, one, uh, as the one, as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And I love this description of Jesus, full of grace and truth. Don't we, just, don't we tend just to be just one of those things? And when we're just one of those things, we become out of balance. When we're one of, of, of uh, you know, if we're one of those people that are, you know, we stand on just grace with people, we tend to be people who are kind of squishy people, right? And, and so when we try to, 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 to tell them something in their life, it's, it, it, you know, it's like, you know, trying to nail a nail into a wall with a wet sponge. It doesn't, you know, we're just kind of squishy. And then for those of us who are kind of like truth-oriented people, we tend to try to nail that, you know, nail into the wall with a wrecking ball, right? And so neither of those things work. And it's not that we have this binary choice. No, Jesus says, man, I am, I, I am going to stand in both. I am, one, I, I am grace 100%. I am truth 100%. And that's what we see in Jesus constantly, grace and truth. John, uh, returning again to, to John the Baptist, bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who came, comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And that's just a teaser for next week. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is another phrase I love, grace upon grace. John says God is, is, is invisible. No one's seen him. And so the Jews were given the, the law. And the law is a way of knowing about God. And, and I don't know about you, but when I read the law in the Old Testament, I, I feel like I've been punched in the gut every single time. But it's truth. It's like flipping the light switch on in the dark. It, it hurts for that little second uh, at, at, at the beginning. Let me give you a, a, an example. It, inevitably, around this time of year, sometime during every fall season, I find myself thinking about the law as I, I drive by fields that have been harvested. And it doesn't really matter what kind of fields they are, whether they're vineyards or orchards, or if you're somewhere where there's uh, wheat fields or cornfields, it doesn't matter. Because I think the same principle applies where, you know, where 
you see the, the, you know, the gleaning of the, the grapes that are left over. They're still hanging on the vines after the harvesters have come through. And, 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 or, or if you're in a place where there's wheat field, you see that, stalk of, that odd stalk of wheat still left standing in, in, in the field after harvesting. And no matter where, what it is, whenever I see that, I'm reminded of the law in the Old Testament where it says that, that when you harvest your wheat, you're to leave the edges alone. And then when you're harvesting your wheat, if you drop some of the wheat while you're harvesting it, you're supposed to just leave it there. Now, that, that sounds odd, but the, but the reasoning is clear. It is so that the poor people who are coming uh, through behind you have something to eat. They can grab uh, from the edges. And that you're not to use your own wealth and resources just for yourself. But you're, al- you're to allow some to be left behind to help others. And so whenever I look upon a harvested field, I'm always reminded of how ungenerous I am and how I like to use all of my stuff for me, right? And so when we read the law, when we see those things, we kind of get punched in the gut a little because that's what the law does. And, 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 and that doesn't mean that, the, that it's bad. The law is good. It is righteous and it is painful. And then we, then we get to see a God, again in Jesus, who brings grace and truth. Yeah, he brings truth. That, that unconditional, sometimes really hard truth. But he brings it with grace upon grace. And I just think if John had a long enough manuscript, he would have said grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. You know, some people who, who aren't Christians who... You find if you talk to them about Jesus, they don't, they don't want to come to him because the truth of Scripture is too hard. It's too painful. Because it says things and calls us the things that, that don't feel good to us sometimes. The light shines and it hurts our eyes. But Jesus communicates things saying, and the point of the law here is you can't keep it. You can't even do it. And so Jesus throws the truth out there with grace upon grace upon grace. There was a a great example of this that I I recently stumbled uh, upon as I was um, reading, kind of more skimming this article that talked about one of the most successful basketball coaches in college um, history, Tom Izzo at uh, Michigan State. And and in the article, it talked about how on one occasion when uh, when there was this, this player, I can't, I can't remember if it was a game or, or, or during practice, but, but Coach Izzo was yelling at him, and so he yelled back, and he dropped an F-bomb on him. And, and, and one of the other coaches says, you can't do that. And he's like, yeah, I, I know I can't do that. And so the rest of the time, he's, he's just try, trying to kind of avoid the coach. And then he gets into the locker room afterward, and he quickly showers up, and he's trying to get out of there as quickly as he can without making eye contact with which co- Coach Izzo, and he hears a voice behind him say, hey, are you going to yell at me like that and just walk out of here like nothing happened? That's truth, right? And the player turned around and looked, and Coach Izzo was standing there with a big smile on his face and said, see you tomorrow. And that's grace. Truth with grace upon grace upon grace. What you're going to see in the book of John is some very tough truths. They're there. You're, 
you're gonna, we're going to see them, but piled on top of those truths, you're going to see grace upon grace upon grace. And John's goal for this book is my goal for this series, that you would believe in Jesus, that you would receive Jesus, and that you would have life. And that you would find that these true things that Jesus calls us to, that, that, that we can only do through him and through his work on the cross, really truly brings life. And it's worth living for. Let me pray.